You're listening to the 11th episode of Season 4 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about songs written for, or to, or about women. Mostly, it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by a strict isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating around a song from my album Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to it like one watches a video of a car accident over and over again in slow motion. Episode 11, Everywhere I Go. This song was about when someone clearly wants you to change what kind of person you are, and that might not be terribly possible for you, so you try to laugh it off a bit. One complaint I often get from women who are perennially plagued with passivity, inaction, and self-doubt is that I make my plans, and I then go ahead and just do whatever it is I'm going to do, just like that. I often ask people what they think, but I always make a decision before too long and go and do whatever I decide. Drives a lot of people nuts, especially if they can't do that. People complain that I think and talk too quickly and too much. That must be very annoying, but I can't actually think fewer thoughts more slowly. This may be happening slowly with age, but part of me being able to make what look like fairly snap decisions is fast flurries of thought that happen in a minute or so. So long as the thinking doesn't involve numbers, it doesn't take me long to make up my mind or change it pretty quickly in the face of new information. No doubt that comes off as incredibly smug and maybe even thoughtless. Some people accuse me of acting without forethought, but only people who don't know me at all. Like any high school teacher, I have, of course, taught and interacted with students who are on cocaine or recreationally on amphetamines beyond the usual ADHD meds, but I doubt I'm like that. I don't have the euphoria or the fidgety energy, for one thing. I'm pretty slow-moving, still, and expressionless, I imagine, but my brain is usually working away on something. At jobs, I have found that when some people take lunch together, they have turned their brains off, and they object to the talk of any of the rest of us who are rehashing what's happened at work that day. But some of us are still thinking and planning and analyzing work stuff on lunch at work. Pretty annoying, I guess. But it seems to me that's when I'd like to do it, not at home later, by myself. I have an uncle who is pretty smart. He's an uncle by marriage, obviously. And my aunt, who often wonders what it would be like to be so smart, used to see him looking out the window or staring off into space and would ask him, What are you thinking? Assuming it would be something really smart. And he'd have to admit to her that he was thinking nothing. His mind was a blank. This seemed to be the resting state of his mind. Hearing this made me realize that my brain just doesn't naturally do that at all. This is why people have always been so keen to get me to try cannabis or failing that meditation. They think I'd be easier to be around if I weren't listening to everything and remembering and thinking about it all, all the time. I spoke with Evan about this. The woman really liked me a lot, but thought maybe I thought and felt and talked too much. And she wondered if it's possible I would consider thinking and talking and feeling less. And we have you on the record tonight. Generally speaking, what what it, do you do you think that there's any merit to that or these these are not these are, these are non-negotiable. Yeah, right. I can't I can't think and feel less. 
if you want me to, I could not talk to you, but that's not a sign of affection from me, I will point out. And it's not a sign of interest if I stop talking and thinking about you or feeling about you if you're a woman. Um, and I get it. I, I'm too intense um, for a lot of people. And I, that, that's the way it is. I've talked to people who I find very intense. But the song's a bit sassy. It's sort of her saying, like, do you think maybe you could not be like yourself? Do you think you could talk less? And the response is, oh, everywhere I go, people say that I don't, I talk less than everybody. And I'm like, you know, it's sort of like a, a braggy, jokey, not taking it seriously because it's not real to, to try to be a different person. Someone's uncomfortable because you are yourself. And you're basically saying, could I change? Totally. Like, you know, you want me to be silent? I'm a ninja. And I'm obviously not a ninja, but it's, it's whistling in the dark. It's sort of joking around about the fact that I can't change these things much. I can superficially try to tone them down for your benefit temporarily. But if we're looking at a relationship, woman and I, um, I'm kind of like this, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, it was we... a deal breaker. I talked with Michael a bit on the subject. Is it that I'm too challenging that I push the conversation in ways that aren't expected, which is valuable, but annoying and uncomfortable? Yeah. And you have an insatiable appetite. I think that also adds to it. For what? For, um, for more, for taking it. Well, if that's true, let's, what does that, what does this mean? That that would also mean that like people have, have figured out a thing to a certain point and then they got tired. They're like, I don't want to go any further. And then but you, you come along and you're like, well, this means this and this and this. Mm -hmm. And if you put these two things together, it shows that you're, and, and at this point, their mind is like, no. <laughs> they don't want to think. I, don't I went to um, a concert, like the Northern Pikes were playing locally. And none the least of which, because I interviewed Jay Semico for my podcast, I was thinking, kind of rude to do that and then not go to his concert when he's at, from out from out of province. And I waited until payday to buy the tickets and they'd sold out. So I had to go to the next town over, which was like an hour and 40 minutes drive away on a school night, but I did. And so I went to that, but that gave me like an hour and 40 minutes to think. And I think best when I'm talking or driving or both. So I just, yeah, had a conversation with myself and what you're describing, because I don't know what I'm like to be with. I don't know how it's different from other people, but here's something that I came up with. It's like my brain's on and it's working away, and I'm connecting dots and doing all of that all the time. And other people are doing things to shut their minds off a lot more. But is your, would you say your dad's like that too? He's like thinking all the time? Yes. I don't know if Mark's like that, but I, I don't think we get to pick that. Well, there's a whole song that basically it's like, I really like you, but I think you should change a bunch of things. And the sorts of things that they want you to change are, I don't like how you think, and you think too much. I don't like what you think about. I don't like the conclusions that you draw. Um, I don't like that stuff. Is it possible that you could just sit there and not know anything? Is it possible you could sit there and not notice anything? Is it possible you could just not have any epiphanies for a couple of years? That's what it felt like. Hmm. And that probably explains it better than the song. <laughs> that song's called Everywhere I Go. There's this sort of whistling in the dark braggadocio thing of like, I am renowned for that everywhere I go. Of course, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm awesome at that, which is, is covering up the fact that you're like, I'm kind of like this. Like, I really can't help this. I, I do think like this. And this is not necessarily clinical or, or whatever. You've got to... Yeah a dad and a brother that are, are like that. I don't know if you're like that. Do you feel or probably not? Or 
What do you think? At times, I, I also have times when I'm not thinking. Hmm. Well, I think a lot. I think you do too. There's, uh, there's two things my sister said that I think are relevant. The first thing she said is having a conversation with me can feel like you're kind of under a spotlight being vivisected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which that really graphically lets me know why people might not want to hang around me. And the other one is that she said that she doesn't feel, even as a child, that my personality was negotiable by me or anyone else. <laughs> so people were like, can you be a little less? It's like, I can't just do that. Like, I'm like this. I'm not autistic, you know, clinically, but I do yeah. think like this. But I don't know. You know me longer than almost anyone. I know. And you you vivisected me and my family with, with the spotlight uh, over the years. And it, it took me probably until i don't know my 30s until i was about 30 before i could maybe it was after that you probably remember when i stopped i learned how to not take it personally anytime you would start start analyzing and digging in you weren't you weren't doing it to um, hurt me and offend me you were doing it to figure this out and you know is this something you haven't seen you were making connections between things that were going on in my life with you know results that were you know happening or relationships between people and a lot of times I was so overly protective of my own family that, that, and like, like why, what vested, what, why was I so protective? Why did I get so angry at the vivisection? And it, but it came from attributing bad motives to you. It wasn't yeah. giving you the good motive because you did have good motives and you, you wanted things to work together. And that's what I've learned over the years. And, and now it's, it's, uh, I relish it when you, you start digging in. Sometimes it hurts. I'm like, Oh, do you think <laughs> I generally have had good motives? Yes, I think you've always had good motives. Well, that's quite a thing. So then why am I being misread so badly? Is it because society just, you know, wasn't ready for one as beautiful as Vincent Van Gogh and I? Or is it that I'm really bad at marketing myself? Did Mark and your dad no, have the same thing? Yeah, with, with they do. They do with uh, not as extreme, I don't think, in you because you already had been axed by the culture. But people don't attribute good motives to them. And they do have good motives. It feels um, like we're being judged for noticing and making connections, which is something we do passively. We just walk into a room and a bunch of connections form themselves in front of us. And we're like, look at that. Like that's connected to that. And they're like, oh no. And, and blah, blah, blah. And like, I was saying this to your dad recently. He was sort of asking what I thought of brethren people. What do I think about the people in the movement? And I was presenting this idea that my experience of like many brethren people are very intelligent in their way. Uh, their jobs can, and their education tell you that they're really good about money or science or something that I'm not good at. And yet when I talk to them, it's like talking to people who can't think. And that's because they don't think in certain areas. So, and I view it, I, I imagine I'm like a computer that's been left on and, and there wasn't enough dating and you know relationships and children and stuff to interrupt my runtime i think i've just been left running for too many decades and i've done too much okay. math i've spit, spit out you know 42 but to, to my mind one of the things that really tells me i'm dealing with a religious person is okay this this person's very smart they make tons of money uh, they have a really important job they got a great education but when they're talking about their assembly or its dealings with people or the silly divisions or anything about how they do or don't do things, um, they can't see anything. And that's because they don't look. 
And when you're looking, they're like, why are you looking? For me, it's like a guy walks up to you and they've clearly just been shot in the belly with a shotgun and you look I'm like, why are you looking? What's your motive? Like what, what it's creepy to be looking. It's like, well, I heard a shotgun blast go off and you appear to be bleeding profusely from your abdomen. And they're like, well, I think it's very weird that you're bringing that up. Like, what's your motive? We should be talking about. We should be talking about how lovely the birds are singing today. And that's what life seems like to me. And they say, then the Lord may come at any moment. The Lord may come at any moment. And if he doesn't, though, then then what do you do about being gut shot? And I think this doubles in with not only has my computer been running for too many decades, it's saved a lot by skipping what we would normally call the positive entirely. (laughs) And in that sense, I use the word positive the way most people do to mean the pleasant. Basically, if I feel good about it, I don't need to think about it. If it's great outside or there's a song... I enjoy not having to think because that's rare for me. I mean, yeah, I, I wreck it for myself sometimes. Went to the concert. I noticed what overhead drum mics were being used because I have those and I use those with George. Like too much thinking. You're supposed to be enjoying the rock and roll. You're not supposed to be checking out the drum mics. Although people like your dad might suggest this is exactly how we do have fun sometimes. I think that's also why alcoholism probably became pretty rampant in my family for a while. Uh, Help not think. Kids. Thinking and it, and it, oh, in myself too. I I went through. I didn't get it. I wasn't really as bad. Um, I wasn't as bad as those. I imagine if I became an alcoholic, I would quickly start getting into the habit of getting drunk and thinking anyway, drunkenly. That's what I yeah, think would happen. Thomas, you'd start writing poetry that was pretty pretty fantastic. Hopefully, hopefully, I wouldn't start drunk driving into like animals and things. Yeah, you should move to a place where there's a bar right next to you when you become an alcoholic. I drove back from the concert. I saw five deer and a raccoon that narrowly escaped getting hit by my car. (laughs) Five deer and a raccoon that I could have hit. Now, I certainly don't always speak up, but unfortunately, some of the kinds of things I've noticed and sometimes said aloud because of my vivisecting mind to the person most affected by the situation rather than, as is traditional in Christian circles in particular, to absolutely everyone else first, have been things like this. These boiled down opinions and observations are, for the sake of brevity, stripped entirely of context, tact, buying the person a coffee, listening to them go on and on about their confusion about why things are the way they seem to be for months, and any attempt to break it to them gently or lead them to discover any of this on their own. Very often, people keep coming to you asking you to help them find answers, but don't like the answers you think they probably already know are right there in the back of the book if they were to flip to the back and have a look at them. And if you're me, you also get people coming to you after something has gone really, really wrong for them, saying, you knew, you knew that was going to happen. Now, why didn't you tell me? Saying, I also knew you were never going to listen to anything I or anyone else said, has not, in my experience, worked out terribly well. Things like this. She has been promoted up out of her area of competence, as per the Peter Principle. As much as everyone is trying to cover for her over the past six months, this is no longer something that can be hidden. Serious problems are happening, and it needs to be dealt with. She needs help, and if she can't be helped, we need someone else fulfilling at least some of her role. Her job absolutely requires an ability to deal with interpersonal conflict and social awkwardness, and she consistently flees those, despite how vital it is to sort them out in her job. 
and that isn't working. Let me know if you want to talk about any of this. Or, the guy you have gotten engaged to has profound emotional problems. He is barely holding it together. He needs help. If you focus on getting him help rather than getting engaged, that would be good. If you let him use the engagement as another way to put off dealing with what can no longer be hidden from anyone, there's a big crash coming for both of you. Let me know if you want to talk about any of it. Or, you've decided to view our school board as a business, and you're always trying to sell education to what you view as our customer base rather than as scholars or students. Yet every year, you do more to ensure that our final product, so to speak, high school diplomas, mean less and less as we give them to absolutely anyone, pretty much no matter what. You want teachers to view scholars being regularly at school as unimportant in rewarding them for entirely imaginary scholastic activities, giving unearned, entirely fictional credits to students who have never studied anything. Now we have devalued our product to the point where if we're giving it away for free, no one takes it seriously anymore or would consider working for it. The credits we give foreign students certainly do not count for anything and are completely unrecognized by the education systems in their home countries. Let me know if you want to talk about any of it. Or, the adulterous relationship he is having is no longer a secret or even close to it. This is why people in general no longer respect him trying to hold a position in the church in which he is responsible to judge the conduct of others and teach adolescents about right and wrong. It's not a secret, so it's time to address it for what it is. Let me know if you want to talk about any of it. Or... All this squabbling that we're doing each week is unchristian and is about to result in a significant church division, which will end in our church group splitting into two or more factions worldwide. It will never be the same afterward. We need to change or die, and we're choosing never to change. And what does that leave? Killing every human, let alone Christian, connection just so we can claim to be the ones who are the right ones. We need to seriously rethink what we're doing and how we do it, not double down on it. Let me know if you want to talk about any of it. Or, we treat the students who do all of their work and attend regularly exactly the same as the ones who don't do any of their work and don't show up to class almost ever. And now we're wondering why, increasingly, the former students are starting to act more and more like the latter ones. This isn't really a mystery. It's time to stop playing dumb as to why it's happening. Let me know if you want to talk about any of it. Or, you are in an abusive and controlling relationship. It is held together far more by fear than by love. You need to leave it or find a way to turn that around. Let me know if you want to talk about any of it. Or, there's this thing you're doing absolutely everything possible to avoid dealing with. You know the thing that we all know about? You need to deal with it because it's past time. It's not too late, though, but it is time for you to deal. Let me know if you want to talk about any of it. Or, the education system that we're following is guilty of fraud. Fraud is being asked to do a job asking for money for it, in our case, from the provincial government, then not doing that job at all, really, but declaring officially and in writing that we've done a fantastic job of it, having made the emperor some new clothes that are better than any clothes that have ever been made in the past and keeping the government's money. We might consider putting in a more authentic job. Let me know if you want to talk about any of it. Or, 
Your business model is based entirely upon unfounded positive feelings, forward momentum, and blind, uninformed optimism. That got you going, but you've now run out of forward momentum, and you need to start getting informed and dealing with facts rather than continuing to make uninformed decisions or you're about to go out of business in the next six months. Let me know if you want to talk about any of it. Or, your wife is terrified of you. And you're making her feel that way because you need control over her because you're terrified that she'll leave you. And that's about to happen anyway if you don't learn more about forming bonds based on love rather than fear. She's already in the process of leaving you, but it's not too late. Let me know if you want to talk about any of it. Or the real reason all of these friendships have fallen apart for you over the past couple of years has less to do with those people betraying you or whatever and more to do with your substance abuse. You are an alcoholic. Everyone knows it, but apparently you. Ask anyone. It's something you're going to have to deal with as soon as possible. Let me know if you want to talk about any of it. I'm really fun at parties. Well, I am if you want to tell me about all of your problems and people cheating and your substance abuse and your abortion and all of that stuff. For me, depression in my teens was all about wondering, what is wrong with me? I can tell you that every time a woman decided she really liked me, then decided that she really didn't, this brought this question of, what is wrong with me, screaming right back to the frontal cortex. I'm certain that someone listening to this episode has a brain that's more than a bit like mine, one that's not socially convenient. But back to thinking about depression... One concern is what's referred to as rumination. Cows are ruminants, chewing their cud and burping a lot to really get that grass and timothy and clover and alfalfa, which people can't digest at all, thoroughly digested and turned into hundreds of pounds of beef. So the word is also used to describe introspective people like me thinking. We also use the word brooding, which is what hens do when sitting on their eggs. Until recently, the only game in town as to therapy has been Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT. Dumbed down to the point of making it unrecognizable, CBT seems to have been built around the idea that we feel sad and upset feelings because we are in a habit, in a rut, of thinking sad and upsetting thoughts. Now, there's a clear view as to cause and effect being expressed there, but it's pretty simplistic. You find in the course of your week that you get pulled into cycles of self-defeating, self-rejecting, critical thinking. You think of all the things you've done wrong and start imagining how things will look as you no doubt continue to do that kind of stuff and you feel dejected. So the advice of CBT seems to be, hey, you, you cows, cows, you'd have, have happier, happier bellies, bellies if you stopped ruminating. ruminating. Hey, you, you hens, hens, you'd, you'd have, have happier nests if you'd, you'd stop brooding. brooding. When I pursued therapy options, this was really all that was on the table, besides meds designed to handicap my brain's ability to clear out whatever dregs of naturally generated happy juice that were lingering on in there at the end of the day. And it didn't work at all. Well, it might be better to say that things were more complicated than that as to therapy, the therapist's sexual assault charges notwithstanding. I had learned how to do the CBT thing fairly young, and when self-defeating, catastrophizing, doom-predicting thinking would start, an inner me would snap, stop that, you're doing that again, you don't know any of those bad things are going to happen, so don't feel bad about them unless they do. And that was a good thing to learn. It wasn't that hard, actually, either. 
But since I first encountered it, CBT itself has had to adjust to the simple reality that our feelings cause thoughts just as much as our thoughts cause feelings. And what we and other people are doing, a third factor, plays into feelings as well, and is in turn partly determined by them. The actions, thoughts, and feelings are all reacting to and sparking off one another in real time and in memories as well. My brain is happiest when it has a field of something to work on, chew over and digest and turn into hundreds of pounds of beef. And I've noticed it's least happy when it has the least amount to do and isn't arriving at any cognitive or artistic products, so to speak. I guess that would be hell to live with for a whole lot of people. Exhausting. Since the multiple sclerosis diagnosis and the knowledge that I have a certain amount of brain and neurological damage and that exhaustion and depression have mysterious, unexplained connections to MS, I have noticed a pattern in my mood. When I'm working, my brain is going full speed, and that's as happy as I get. No time to overthink anything. It's called a flow state. When you're in it, you don't think much at all. But after all these years of teaching, I'm also more than capable of giving an off-the-cuff, 45-minute, aggressively dumbed-down-for-high-school lesson about subject-verb agreement or Shakespeare, Chaucer, or Beowulf or the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Actus Reis, and Mens Rea, or Canadian involvement in the First World War, while carrying on a whole internal narrative about having been impulsive with money this month and thinking about all of the expenses that are coming up, and also running simulations as to what random expenses are likely to pop up in the course of the year or wondering why she hadn't texted me yet that day. What had I texted her last? I know I'm not the only person who has a brain like this. But generally, the more my brain has to do, the more random social input in and out in a familiar, structured workplace, the clearer goals are, and the more scheduled the day is, and the more agency I have in it, the healthier my thinking seems to be. Put me in an over-busy, unstructured social setting, especially one that's less familiar and less my idea and less up to me to define, filled with unpredictable social intrigue and complexity and very little say from me, and I get tired and irritable very quickly. Very spectrumy of me, I realize. Put me in a room full of people talking and doing stuff and it's like my brain is trying its best to track and follow and remember and observe all of it and failing. That's the other extreme. But to function well, I need stimulus, structure, agency, and clear goals. You want to piss me off at school on a special professional activity day by recreating my childhood church experience? Plop me into the middle of something profoundly pointless and unstimulating, with no clear goals or even an end time in sight, and expect me to sit respectfully still and silent, smiling and nodding, cooperatively doing things that are not only not my idea, but are nothing I can predict as to what pointless and boring goalless thing is coming next, and when it will come, and who I might have to work on it with, and what exactly that will all mean. That puts me right back in meeting. But what I more normally struggle with when I'm not at work is having no routine, purpose, or project, or goal, and no stimulus at all. That's one reason I moved somewhere that, although there are no people near, there's a dramatic, changing landscape of nature out every window and critters everywhere, sometimes in my basement. But it's not enough. Sometimes you need people and things going on, goals. 
So I suppose it's no surprise that when as a teacher I'm sent home for two weeks or two months of vacation and I have no money to go vacationing anywhere and I have cars and things to fix, that I have to wait a pay week or three before putting the repairs on visa, when I go home to my place in the woods knowing I'm likely to not see a human soul more than once or twice every week or so, and then often just people in stores, my brain flounders a bit, doesn't know what it's going to do with itself besides ruminate over past stuff and brood about imaginary or long past or possibly happening in the future things. When someone I cared about deeply, with whom I had formed a close and deeper bond with than any other love interest before, had moved on to dating other guys and not talking to me, and I'd gotten the frightening MS diagnosis as 50 approached and my cat got sick and died, one thing that totally saved me was taking courses online. Not more courses teaching teachers how to teach like they always want us to take. Courses about stuff that I might want to teach. Chaucer and Beowulf and Viking grammar and stuff like that. That helped. Apart from those, my biggest coping strategy so far as to rumination and brooding has been to lean into that hard enough to come out the other side with something in my hand to show people. Not just mope around fretting over mistakes, folly, tragedy, and general tough times in the past and future worries aimlessly, but to shape some relatively focused thinking about selected bits of that mess into a podcast script, then record it and the song that expressed my feelings at the time and publish it. The thing about publishing it is I pretty much need to stop thinking about it on that level afterward because it's published now. It's been uploaded. So I've thought and felt about it, but not idly and emptily. And I've tried to sequence it, make sense of it, learn about it, package it up, and then I'm done serious thinking about it. It's a way of delineating between idle and serious thinking about upsetting stuff. So when I idly may be tempted to brood about it later, there's a feeling that I'm done with it, that I've already thoroughly finished doing that. That episode is uploaded already, and it seems to really work. Listening to an old, forgotten song like this one this week has a tendency to kind of emotionally put me right back where I was when I wrote it. But writing about it and publishing it means I've given myself a deadline for fretting over it, and I reach the point of being done with that exercise and having made a thing. And having made a thing, that feels a whole lot better. It's like there are rattlesnakes living under your step. I choose to live in a country where there aren't rattlesnakes in most of it. And so instead of being afraid to leave the house, you learn to catch and milk rattlesnakes for their venom, make an anti-venom out of that for in case you or any of your guests get bit, then you kill the rattlers you've caught, cook rattlesnake steaks for your relatives, and give rattlesnake rattles to the kids to play with and have a guitar strap made of rattlesnake hide. Just like the saying goes, if, if life, life gives, gives you poisonous reptiles, reptiles you, you turn your rattlesnakes, rattlesnakes into lemonade. lemonade. In real life, I wouldn't be going anywhere near a rattlesnake, but this is kind of what I'm doing with my dark moods and dread. Sometimes it feels like my skull is a nest of snakes. But what I'm doing is learning to live with who I am, and it seems to work, at least for me. Side note, I did know someone who, when he saw rattlesnakes on his property, if he was drunk enough, would catch and kill them and keep them in the fridge and eat their meat. But he's not someone I generally choose to emulate much in real life. But yeah. When people don't like how I think and feel, or when I speak my mind and heart, sometimes that's not negotiable, even for a halting, indecisively sweet lady who has lovely hazel eyes and a brilliant smile, and a simple request that I just be a little less intense, a little less thoughtful, a little less talkative, a little less emotional. I try not to need more trivial things than I have to. Gum, coffee, 
cigarettes, moisturizer, so I don't buy any of those, and then I don't need them. I've been single so long that I'm more than a bit afflicted with, well, I don't need anything. What do you need? Annoying again, I imagine. Walking around like that all the time, not needing much of anything. I've had people express incredulity and actual disapproval when they learn that not only might I not bother with breakfast before work or lunch at work either, but I don't even require coffee or tea, not even to help help me get get going going in the morning. morning. In fact, I really hate both of those hot, bitter beverages. Sacrilege, I know. How are you going to run church, staff meetings, and Alcoholics Anonymous without barrels of hot coffee on hand? I imagine trying to endure them without coffee would give you some idea of what it's like for me to endure them, period. I spoke with Carol about this. I'm trying to be romantic with somebody, and they're like, oh, you're, you're great, I love you just the way you are, but maybe you could change all these things. I don't think that works. No, it doesn't work, but uh, the expectations, and um, I, I mean, I don't think we saw like how to have good relationships growing up necessarily when it comes to stuff like that people want you to change you're supposed to yes or what to even change or you're supposed to just you know we're supposed to just be happily married we're christians there's nothing to work on or you know yeah and i think you might relate to this that i mean everybody says i talk too much but what i kind of tell them is i think what you really don't like is you think i think too much (laughs) and thinking is hard to do not for me like i can't stop and so people notice me talking endlessly but i'm thinking a lot. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that's the kind of brain I have. It picks away at stuff all the time. So that tends to come out my mouth, you know? Well, I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, it's good to think and think properly, you know? But, you know, a lot of people don't enjoy hearing thinking happening. I would have liked to have heard more thinking and meeting. I sure of, would. You know, just what I heard. <laughs> yeah. I've got a whole episode about that in season three. Michael Better was talking about all this talk about we should, it's great to talk about the Lord. Let's talk about the Lord. And Michael's like, okay, well, are we going to talk about him? Oh, it's great to talk about the Lord. So yeah, but are we going to do it? It's like, yes, about how important it is to talk about the, yeah, and it just would never, <laughs> never happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, man. That's last season. Emily had this to say. Yeah, that's not cool. I don't think it's right to change someone's values or beliefs. Mm-hmm. I think those are the two biggest things values beliefs and wants to a degree with the wants those i don't think should be changed because they are the foundations of what you would look for in someone and so where the change is where i think everyone should compromise and be open to is if i was to speak to you in a certain way that you don't like and you've pulled me up on it on a few times, and maybe it's cooperated as well with other people, then yes, I'd probably have to look into that and go, oh, mm-hmm. do you know what? You're not the first person that's turned around and said I'm like that. And it's almost having that consideration there and that respect there to go, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, I'll do my best to work on it. Mm-hmm. In the past and fairly recently, I've noticed that my communication skills are really rubbish and I've had an ex-partner say to me I don't like how you say that it's very negative and I sit back and I reflect on it and I'm like oh I don't mean anything by it it's just how I am Mm -hmm. and then after a while after I reflect and I reflect and I reflect and I'm sitting there thinking 
I don't want to be negative. I don't want to be like that. I want to be more positive. So I'm thinking, do you know what? I've been like that for the last 10 years or whatever. I do want to change that. But I think any change has to be spoken about in an adult way. And the person receiving the information to change certain behaviours needs to be quite open. But also the person asking that person to change needs to be open to any behaviours that their partner may not like. What do you think about that? Well, my sister was the chameleon. Whatever people seem to want, she could please them and be who they wanted her to be. I've never been able to do that. So it's like, this is the way I am. And if people come up and want to talk to me about not liking my personality or who I am, they usually end up leaving the conversation a lot more annoyed than they entered it. Yeah, I think there's a price of right for being a chameleon. I mean, at first, you might have people that want to be close to you, and it might seem like, you know, it's going to work out and you don't, um, you know, you're not being rejected, but you can't necessarily get close to people and build strong relationships when they're not allowing you to be who you are or you're not allowing yourself to be who you are. Absolutely. Less upfront pain, but long-term it's a degenerative. (laughs) Yeah. I did most of my fighting with my dad and my assembly when I was young and now I'm kind of done. And people like my sister have not begun to really explore their problems with it. And it, it's, it's hard. If it was something like they wanted you to, to vote different or become a vegetarian or change uh, oh my God. things like that. <laughs> there's, there's, uh, there's limits, right, to how much you can be asked to change. I've got a whole opinion on that. I would um, like to hear it. I have a very close, two very close family members that are both vegan. Right. And within the last five years, one met a really f- a, a, a fitness guy, personal trainer, and he eats meat. She's not changed it. Mm-hmm. And he has said, I'm eating meat. I'll stay eating meat. You're not going to change me. She's accepted that. The only compromise they've had is, I think, the milk they use is different for teas and coffees. And that's the only thing that he's willing to compromise on. Right. But she'll have meat in the freezer and she'll even cook him meat, I think, now, whereas she didn't before. My other family member, vegan, completely changed her partner to be vegan. And that worked? And I thought it was wrong. Freedom of choice. Has it lasted? Yes, it has, yeah. And now she's pregnant. And she's probably going to bring up her child not to eat meat. That's her choice. I don't know enough research to say if that's good or not for the child. In my viewpoint, from what I know and what I would do, I wouldn't do that. I'd let the child make their own choice. Well, yeah. But this family member would very, very, you know, we're not eating this, we're not eating that. And I just think it's wrong let everyone make their own choices you can give encouragement and say i think you know consider doing this or consider doing that and you can set some compromises and some boundaries like do you know what well you have your separate freezer and i'm not cooking it for you fine that's fine and you mentioned but, before your your father-in-law um ex-father-in-law and that you make the concession of about football oh my stepdad stepdad yeah. that you pretty much just have to accept the fact that he's a bit nutso about football and you have to leave him be and not stir it up, right? Yeah, just 
yeah, with my stepdad, like he's an Arsenal fan. If you're a Tottenham fan, just don't say it. Just don't. Right. Well, you Not can. Just don't get into a debate with him about football because it's just going to get heated because football is like politics. You'll see what you want to see. Mm-hmm. And everyone sees things completely differently. So there's just no point in getting into an argument about it. Some people even say that they could never, you know, be in a relationship with someone who cheered for the wrong team. And I think that's crazy. That's silly. That uh-huh. is silly. You can have banter about it. It's just all about respect at the end of the day, isn't it, really? Yeah. In Canada, it's hockey. You just respect one another's decisions at the end of the day. If someone wants to support Arsenal, let them support Arsenal, you know? Does it have a major effect on you? The only time it's going to have an effect is when your team's playing against their team. Mm-hmm. And that'll be a debate on that day. And then it'll be forgotten about the next day. Ruth was raised brethren enough that in her 20s, in the early 2000s, she still, as had always been her style, dressed and spoke very much like old women from previous generations had. She was raised that way and it just felt natural for her. So, a lot of talk that seemed more at home in Anne of Green Gables or Little House on the Prairie. Ankle-length skirts and dresses all the time, sweaters and shawls, sneakers, no makeup, long, unstyled hair. Her boyfriend, who she married, exerted constant pressure for Ruth to adopt a more modern, up-to-date way about her. My lack of polish, sophistication, and social skills used to irritate him. He, of course, had none of those things of his own. He didn't like my clothes. I had no notion how to dress like a normal person, someone outside the meeting. And I used to embarrass him by being frumpy. I spoke to Megan about this. Pretty much every relationship's like that at some point, isn't it? <laughs> and am I right in thinking that it's generally the women with the list? Or do guys also have their list that they, they're willing to start the relationship contingent upon a bunch of changes happening in it? Um, no, I think it, it generally is the woman. Um, I feel like women just kind of like to whip a guy up into shape. They're like, you'll do as like a semi-completed picture. Here's some things to add to make it a masterpiece, you know? As long as it's imaginary, what are some of the sorts of things you're imagining when you think about these things? Um, I think it's probably more like sort of domestic stuff. So like you know, being cleaner and helping with chores and being a bit more loving. Um, so maybe taking more dates or giving gifts, compliments, things like that. Man, I've been doing it all wrong because I like start relationships and think uh, maybe we maybe we can work and you can become more sane. <laughs> or or emotionally stable emotionally stable or or less irrational or erratic and that never has worked for me at all no I feel like if you go into something with the idea of I'll change them I don't think it's going to work for either of you no I think it's socialized that you know it's there's totally room here for men to be sometimes you hear it called they're they're fixer-uppers yes right they need to be they need to be fixed up by women and I mean, that's that's offensive. The traditional wording that's all too familiar is that um, women marry men hoping they will change and men marry women hoping they won't. And there's this sort of double misery there that the women fail to sufficiently change the men and the men are disappointed in the fact that the woman changes significantly 
from the performance she put on during the dating part of the relationship. But sure. anyway, yeah, you're you're saying that basically. I think you're saying that. I think that it's normalized that that's how it's going to go in a relationship. On average, again, you know, lots of exceptions, whatever. That the men need to but, be domesticated and tamed. Well, I, I mean that that's that's pretty strong language. I house think, broken but, then. Yeah, m- m- broken in. Bullet trained, but that's that's not good in a i mean i mean in okay in a sense i do think that one of the best parts of a relationship is you could try to help both people could try to help each other uh reach you know a, a better part of themselves you know grow a little right like uh everybody benefits from more perspective everybody benefits from from being challenged once in a while and hopefully you find a person who you you can help make better and they can help make you better like great that's that seems like a pretty good goal sure but the idea that you're going to come in and say like, okay, so you, you are a canvas and I'm going to turn you into art. Like yeah. that's, that's not, it's, it's not polite. It's, it's um, not, that, that it's, not was, and it's not playful either. I'm very open for the idea that we're, let's say you meet a woman, you're in a relationship and she's going to help you learn how to make her happier. Like what, mm-hmm. what makes her happy? There's a giant difference between saying, this is what I like. Let me help you with what I like. And saying what you do is wrong, and I'm going to fix you. Like I'm going to, yes. I'm going to correct you. Um, yeah. it, you become tailor made for each other. There's mm-hmm. no judgment in that. It's basically this works for me or it doesn't work for me. That That's is right. neutral. It's a big difference to say, oh, you need to be fixed. I, I don't like it so much that when I see it happening to other typically guys, although I'm sure I'd hate to see it happen. If if I saw it happening to a woman, I, it'd probably be worse. It'd be harder to watch that. Frankly, don't you think yeah. if a guy was just pastor henpecking her all the time? Well, I have an episode about abuse. When men control women and want to change how they dress and their hairstyle and how they talk, a lot of people say this is normally a female failing. It's a failing no matter who does it. And we often catch, we often see women who are trying to over-domesticate and henpeck their husbands. We have the expression henpecked, not cockpecked um, for a reason. But the reality is it does happen the other way, and it's no better. And it may, and even if it happens less frequently, we don't like it. Yeah, we don't like it. Totally. There's that big difference between if you're trying to make me happy, I don't like that outfit on you. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference between that and that outfit is wrong and you shouldn't wear it. And I've thrown it away for you. That's totally different. And I've definitely yeah, seen I, both men and women I, doing that to each other. I think when we see men doing it to women, we're... We're we're worried that this becomes physical abuse. I suppose that that that's probably the biggest. There's, there's fear, and in the episode about it, um, women have really helped me understand that there's a lot of stuff that we men don't like that women do, but we're not scared. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we are. Um, you know that Margaret Atwood quote, I'm sure, right? Yes, mm-hmm. men are afraid that women will laugh at them, and women are afraid that men will kill them. Yeah, it's not small potatoes to be laughed at by a woman. If you're a man and you're trying to be taken seriously as a potential father of their children and they laugh at you, that stinks. It's not it's not a nice thing because it's a difference between I mean, most women have the game to say you're OK, but you're not my cup of tea like you're for someone else. Mm-hmm. Like I don't I don't get the appeal versus like flat out laughing at someone's attempt to be taken seriously as, a, a yeah. and, you know, that that's nasty. It, I think so it's possible. hard to know how many guys didn't ask the girl out, didn't ask the girl to the dance, whatever, just in fear yeah. that she's going to go and say, 
oh, you know who asked me out tonight? You're not going to believe this, right? Yes. And that, and that's weird because, like, I, I was afraid of that. That never even happened to me. Like, what? Like, why are we all afraid that this is going to happen? This is deep in us somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know why. And I, I, and by the way, like, yeah, getting murdered is definitely worse than that. Like, much, I'm, I'm not much worse. To, yeah, like, of course, of course. But I've been largely ignored. I have a long track record of, you know, sending a song or, or do a thing, just getting no response. Um, and that's not nice, but um, I've, I've seldom been laughed at. Uh, that, that would be, I think, much worse. And who knows what they said behind my back. I don't care. The writing of letters thing petered out with the internet. So by the time I'm in my late 20s, we're doing email. Even my mid-20s. By my mid-20s, we're doing email. And that that changed a lot because it's instant. Um, if you send an email and you get no response for a couple of days you're probably not getting a response. Whereas if you send a letter, they, they won't, won't get it for a week or two. And so it's, it changed all of it. Um, probably makes you more worried about every word you write too. Right. Like you know, you're, you're thinking like, I'm going to send this letter. It's going to take two weeks to get there. She has to ponder it. And then it's going to take two weeks to get back. Like, it's like, like, this is the only thing I'm going to say to this person for a month. Probably. I'm going to tell you something. I mm-hmm. still have all the letters that girls wrote to me. Wow. All of them. Do you read them? No. And in a way, I don't want to be reminded of what a dork I was or or whatever. And I worry that these girls will listen to the podcast. But what if they did? Like, like what difference does it make? I, I worry I'm going to get an email and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I was listening to the podcast. And then, and then I'll have to say, and what did you think? And it's like, I think it was hilarious, or, or I kind of regret how I acted, or you were creepy and weird and pathetic or, or whatever, you know, like, I don't, I don't know what it could be. It could be pretty bad. <laughs> I could get laughed at. Yeah. Well, I was actually thinking about that as you, as you were saying some of that. Now, obviously people can not only ask you to change in ways that might not be possible for you or that you just don't like, but also in ways that flat out aren't good for you. Steph happily married and much healthier today says. So about a decade ago, I'm single. I'm at my heaviest weight of 320. I'm on all different kinds of dating websites and talking to a bunch of different guys. And there was this one guy who seemed like he was kind of different from the rest and he seemed really sweet. And so I decided to go on a coffee date with him. And the date went fine. Everything seemed to be going really well and I was, you know, pretty interested until we started discussing what we were wanting what we were looking for and he asked me if I was willing to get any bigger he said the bigger the better and of course I was shocked because I was already at 320 at this point and I'm trying to lose weight and be better and healthier and I wouldn't have thought that any other guy would ever ask you know gain more weight it was so silly to me needless to say I did not further any dates with him or talking to him but uh, it was a little bit weird i'm trying to figure things out because especially with our culture but our like our church culture but the society there's that question of well if you wanted to get married why didn't you and i think that uh, a big chunk of it is i didn't play the game i didn't know how but yeah that that whole thinking thing the the song everywhere i go is about why is your brain like it is does it have to be like that and I think that was partly a deal breaker, along with the family. Uh, 
would present what they saw as their thoughts, literally about what had happened to me in my assembly. And when I then they put theirs on the table. So then when I put on the table, what my thoughts were, which had been significantly more thoughts with a lot more data, because I was there and happened to me, they acted like that was cheating somehow that they were supposed to be right, because I'm not them. And I'm thinking, well, I'll listen to what you say, but it happened to me, I was there, and it is me and you weren't. Um, but that's a great example of that, of where you lose because you win. Mm. I vividly remember a conversation where he asked me, could I try to dress more like a mutual friend of mine? Could I try to be more sophisticated, more polished in my appearance? And it's like he was asking me to be a person that I'm not, a person that I never was. He was trying to get me to look more like a woman of the world, I guess, than a brethren woman. I think he wanted to be in control. He didn't really want to be with me for who I am. He wanted to change me so that I would be an acceptable girlfriend. And I have to say at the same time that this was going on, I was trying to change him. I was trying to make him more acceptable to the brethren. I was trying to make him say the right things and live the right way to be acceptable with my brethren friends because they certainly did not approve of our relationship. And I was painfully, painfully self-aware of that. We were two young people in a battle to make each other the person that we wanted. And that's wrong. You should want to be in a relationship with a person for who they are and for who you are when you're with them. Because if you're not, what's the point? And I am a rather unsophisticated country woman. And I'm never going to be a glamorous sophisticated, polished city girl. That's not who I am. And Mike's never going to be the guy who speaks up in meeting and prays publicly. And I'm never going to make that mistake again. You know, it wasn't just how I dressed or how I appeared. Mike wanted to change how I thought about my entire upbringing my brother in history, my family, my friends. He wasn't happy to just hear me where I stood and how I felt. He wanted to tell me how wrong it was so that he could be the one getting me out of that situation and changing me. I'll never fall for that again. I get that it would be embarrassing to show up to social events with your friends there and someone on your arm who is eccentric, as people like Ruth and I and some of our friends definitely are. Someone who stands out and not in a colorful, fun, cool way. But it's cruel to, as Mike, the father of Ruth's children did, try to get a deeply eccentric person to try to pass for unremarkable, especially when we can't. 
eccentricity is often more than just clothes deep. As a kid, I couldn't help the fact that I had an extended vocabulary, that I used words and expressions I didn't know other people didn't know, and had read more books than most people would in their entire lives. I couldn't hide those facts either. It would have been ridiculous for anyone to ask me, or for me to try, to hide that. I was stuck with them, just like the kid who'd lost a leg to cancer, the kid who had Down syndrome, the kid in the wheelchair, the kid with the birthmark on his face, the kid from the poor family, even the kid who was from a rich family in a town where no one else was, or the kid who was the daughter of the police chief or something like that. Sometimes you just can't blend, and you're kind of on the mercy of people to accept you for who you are. As you might suspect, use of any technology at all often results in odd intermittent glitches. My gear is doing a thing lately where if I type on my keyboard a bit, sometimes it will mess up the audio interface. Normally it just triggers a flashing light and a request to close the recording program. Or sometimes it flat out crashes the recording program without any warning. Today, though, I recorded the second half of the podcast narration only to find the audio interface had been sounding like this the whole time. Let's look in the wicked mailbag. Evan, seeing my question on Facebook looking for digital... So I did it all over again. Let's look in the wicked mailbag. Evan, seeing my question on Facebook, looking for digital letters to wing their way into the wicked mailbag, asking about things people wanted you to change that you couldn't change. Evan wondered if I was also looking for things people who were in relationships were being asked to change, too, or if it was just prospective partners I was interested in. I told Evan the latter. As for me, the episode, the song, and, and my life, this is about deal breakers, things people couldn't accept in you and needed you to change that maybe were so much a part of you that you couldn't change them sufficiently. So the person moved on. I guess Evan's challenges are more subtle ones. Him having, as he has, a Christian bride on layaway for unwrapping once both PhDs are safely in the vault. John, a big strapping military guy who was raised in our brethren, but who has long since moved on from it and his estranged brethren family now, sort of objected to the question, saying, A worthwhile partner loves you for the qualities you already have, but supports positive self-directed changes. Those self-directed changes might indeed be in response to an established partnership, i.e. growing together, but should never be directly provoked as part of the courting ritual. In a more evolutionary context, very much from a male perspective, males were always inherently part of the social development within a group. You were part of the male pack, and you developed and contributed, or natural selection ran its course. This provided an established and expected set of qualities to be present in men, the specific qualities evolving to match the needs of the group and the time period. All this very much from the female perspective. So perhaps the fact that women today so often seem to want to change men indicates that society in this period fails to groom masculinity in men to a standard that appeals sufficiently to our female counterparts. Doesn't actually answer your question exactly, but I found the question itself thought-provoking nonetheless. If Megan speaks for all, 
we men are insufficiently groomed in cleaning the house often enough and in continuing courtship rituals into the relationship once courtship is long over. In evolutionary terms, we men absolutely thrive as a gender in living spaces that are cleaned less rigorously, having a much higher disgust threshold as to everyday clutter, dust, and grime than our female counterparts tend to do. Tim says, as to what women have wanted him to change that he wouldn't or couldn't, my hairline. And this in an era with Vin Diesel, Bruce Willis, The Rock, and so on. As to this song, I remember very clearly sitting across a restaurant table from a woman and having her ask me the question that is at the heart of this song. Overwhelmed by perhaps the intensity of talking to me in person rather than on phones and computers, she basically said... Could you talk and think and feel and care and generally delve into things a lot less? Could you just be still and silent more often without having your head filled to the brim with things that you're simply not saying because you're not supposed to say them? Could you blend more, fade into the background more, go along with the herd more? I remember that question, and I remember writing the song, which dramatizes or perhaps exaggerates my response to that question. But I don't remember when I first recorded it. I suspect that what I'm working with here for this episode was re-recorded more recently given the file format it is in, indicating it is perhaps as recently recorded as only 10 years ago, which would be some time after the thing actually got written to begin with. been quiet she said do you ever sit silent she said ever have nothing else to say and run right out of words in the middle of the day do you ever because i really want to know well i said to her I'd done this song simply, with acoustic guitar and some decorative electric stuff and a bass guitar part to back it up Although I'd had an old tube amp with a very vintage sound since my uncle had given it to me when he heard I was first learning to play guitar, I think my real interest in using it to purposely sound vintage started when I saw the movie Bubba Hotep with Bill. Come and get it, you undead sack of shit. That's a movie with Bruce Campbell as Elvis fighting an ancient mummy, and it has a cheesy and vintage-sounding score. Sorry, man. I noticed the score for it, and the DVD had a making-of feature, which revealed that the score had been one guy playing all of the instruments himself. I think we got it. Good work, Brian. That was great. And the score was moody and right for the movie, but more importantly, sounded like something I could do with my equipment and my skills. It occurred to me recently that I could also trace where it was that I first heard the raked guitar chord vintage sound long before wanting to imitate it. It's something that I heard when I was a lot younger, 
and remembered. It's the final note of the themes for both Kids in the Hall... And also for Mystery Science Theater 3000. So eventually, I'd started putting that kind of thing into my songs from time to time, once I'd started recording on a computer, giving me enough tracks to play with and add extra things in with. I can hear that I'd done some simple call-and-answer backing vocals. She said... She said... Simple, compared to how many backing vocal tracks I've been doing lately. I think I always liked some of the church-inspired pop ideas in the music I listened to when I was first exploring worldly music. The organ parts and the backing vocal choirs. Things like what Jim Steinman was doing with the meatloaf music. But this song wasn't exactly that. In any case, it's a simple little throwaway kind of song with very few parts to it, just a bit of sass in song format. But opening it to make this podcast episode, I noticed something. Although I'd made a guide track with a click on it for Evan, along with all the other songs that I wanted drums for. Three. Between the two of us, we'd somehow managed to overlook doing any drums for this song at all. Now, not only was it a pretty simple little thing, it also didn't absolutely need drums a whole lot. You kind of got the point without. But I mentioned this oversight to Evan, and he was determined he was going to do a last-minute drum part to email me from university, where he's doing nothing more important on a weekly basis than tutoring undergraduates, collaborating on writing an economics textbook, and finishing his Ph.D., Evan had to give me his apologies, though, that his week got out of control, and he simply couldn't do the drum part, after all, before needing to travel home for reading week. And I was fine with that. I repeated that the song really didn't need drums, and that maybe I would just do some myself. Filled with absolute horror at this idea, Evan suggested that, as he was in our neck of the woods around here, so to speak, more or less, for reading week, he might as well just bring over some drums and do something for me at my place. So we resolved that we would do that. In preparation for this, I headed into the city and bought four 20-foot-long mic cables and a 20-foot-long headphone extension cable for just over $150, resolving to use my four mics that, although certainly not drum mics, had served George and I fairly well last winter. And I also asked at the large Long and McQuaid music store after a pack of electric guitar 12-string strings because I'd got the idea to try Nashville stringing my spare electric guitar. 
it needs a different kind of strings than an acoustic because of the magnetism of the steel and the strings being an essential part of being picked up by the pickups and sounding like an electric guitar. But the guys in the store were completely stumped. And that always makes me feel like I'm doing something really interesting. If there's not a set of the strings in the entire music store, and they've clearly never thought about it ever before, I must be doing something genuinely creative and innovative, eccentric and artistic, right? Evan was willing to use the family car to drive over, but there was no way I was letting him brave our lane in my driveway in what has been a remarkably blustery and blizzardy January and February. One other thing. Arriving home, Evan could not locate his snare drum. I told Evan that I do have a snare drum, but that the head on it hasn't been changed since the 90s, and so it sounds a bit rubbery and flaccid. So we agreed that as I work at a high school, I should ask Cynthia, the helpful brass band teacher, if I could borrow a snare drum from the music room, if it wasn't required that day after school for band practice or anything, of course. So I went into the music room after school, braced for yet another snow day to happen the following day, and determined that Cynthia had eight snare drums in there and no band practice after school that day. Cynthia was very willing to lend us a snare, having been Evan's music teacher back when he'd attended high school there, but she futzed around a lot about which snare was tuned how and how dry or thuddy they were and whether they were set up for marching or concert band and which would work for truly epic rock music of the kind for which I am rightly famous and an inspiration to so many young musicians. I convinced Cynthia that I'd chosen a snare that would work, and as an afterthought, Cynthia casually handed me four 50-foot mic cables and a box of dedicated drum mics that never get used at the school. Wow. So I picked up Evan and his drum stuff from his snowy lakeside neighborhood, and we returned to my place to try to get a quick drum part in before the snow started in earnest. Hey, I'm in the Wicked Mailbag. Evan, having been in the Wicked Mailbag only weeks before, was now in my studio, such as it is. He noted that my cat Mason, he thought, was very large. Larger, I think, than the puppies that run around barking at Evan's house. As soon as drums started being hit in earnest, Mason retired in umbrage to the basement. Evan and I agreed that Cynthia's concert band snare sounded better than my 90s one. And it was a delight to not only have a second opinion on drum sound, but actually provide the second opinion myself and let a drummer make the calls relating to the intricacies of drum sound. Because I was happily in over my head recording this kit and all. A delightful challenge to have tossed at me in the middle of February. This wasn't a waved file generated by an electric drum kit that we were doing. It wasn't Serge or another professional miking up a kit for me, for me to mix. It wasn't even George, long experienced and quite opinionated about how exactly one should tune, set up, mic, perform, mix, and master drum parts in my living room with me recording things once George had set it all up. It was Evan and I with a three-piece drum kit and a bunch of unfamiliar mics and cables and things. As to recording drums, more than anything else save perhaps cello, I am a rank amateur, emphasis on the rank, which is an old word that means stinking or reeking. Well, I had showered, but my setup of the drums and mics would have caused many people far less proficient than George to turn their noses up at it. Evan and I moved a couch, and I then positioned the couch to try to somewhat trap bass frequencies from the kick drum that would otherwise fill the room and come back at us from the walls and high ceiling muddying up the sound. 
George had experimented with which side of his carefully tuned drum kit to mic last winter, surprising himself with which side had sounded better. The side he'd expected to be better had been kind of rubbery and flubbery sounding, so he'd mic'd the other side, and that's the one we ended up using. So I decided to be a bit of a professional for once and recorded a tiny bit of Cynthia's chubby little kick drum mic sitting to the front of the kick drum and a bit of how it sounded behind the kick drum right beside Evan's foot. Surprisingly, the front, which looked right, mic'd like that, sounded like this, Evan not having a sound hole in the skin on that side of the kick. And just putting the little mic right beside Evan's foot sounded like this. You're hearing Evan playing the snare drum, and that's picking up in that single microphone as we hadn't yet put in the snare mics. Evan and I agreed to keep that ladder mic arrangement with the mic right beside Evan's foot and the squeaky kick drum pedal. Now, Serge had been providing me drum tracks, 12 per song, with a mic on top of the snare and one under the snare, a mic inside the kick drum and one outside the kick drum, and maybe another four just kind of clustered around the kick drum to have a look at what the other two were doing. So before I knew I would be having trouble using more than four mic inputs, I'd mic the top and bottom of the snare just like I was Serge. I'd saved the mic stand situation by literally putting a small wooden stool right beside the snare with the mic simply lying on top of it and overhanging the edge of it poking under the snare. The top sounded like this. And the bottom, drum mic sitting on the wooden stool, sounded like this. As I am such an experienced drum recordist, I noted there was a fair bit of ring in the snare, as there usually is, but which you normally only care about if you're recording the sound, as it's hardly going to be annoying in a small club or with the kit amplified for a stadium. That's why recording is hard, because things are turned down so much you can hear really clearly. You can hear everything. Instead of getting swept up in the overall mood of the deafening song with the crowd, you can quietly obsess over individual sounds and whether or not they're perfect. And snare drums are supposed to have a snap and the sound is supposed to end. But the thing about snare drums is some of them, after the snap, you get kind of a bong ring sound that you don't want. And so you have to deal with it. So I heard that we had a bit of that going on, as often there is. And I mentioned to Evan that where George and Serge had nerded out for half an hour over two or three snare choices and tuning the drums and putting on ring-dampening plastic, well, rings around the edges of the skin of the snare, and also sticking on these bright blue adhesive jello-looking little blobs of, well, plastic gel called moon gels to the snare drum to mute out the ring, we didn't have any of that stuff. But Evan, having played with a Beatles cover band and a few other groups, had picked up one of those old tricks of the road that musicians pass along to each other. The, the wallet, wallet trick. trick. It's pretty high tech, but I'll try to explain it. You take out your wallet and you stick it on the snare drum, positioning it where it seems to mute out the ring the most. So, after trying the Ringo Starr trick of draping a tea towel over the snare, well, we used a t-shirt, 
and noting it made a really interesting, dry, entirely ring-free sound that we didn't necessarily want on this song, we tried Evan's Leather Wallet. So, without the wallet, the snare sounded like this. But with the wallet, properly installed on top of the snare drum, it sounded like this. It worked. A bit. This episode is not brought to you by Ridge Wallets, which are cool and all, but do not work to dampen ringy snare drum heads, so what's the point of them? So I got the kick and two mic snare sound that I liked. Then I noted that we had way more mics than mic stands. I had stands for maybe five mics. Cynthia's box had eight mics. Now my breakout box for my computer has inputs for eight mics, and I normally only use one anyway. And with George, I'd only used four mics, so this was exciting. We were going to use eight mics. Well, it was exciting until I noticed that my software wasn't discovering the remaining four mic inputs that it should have been. So the breakout box had eight, but the software could only find four, and I didn't have eight mic stands anyway and didn't want to further delay Evan in getting this going. And Evan was playing a three-piece kit, after all. Kick, snare, and hats. I had a floor tom and a crash cymbal, but Evan wanted to do something minimalist, which was absolutely the right call, so we went with just the kick drum, the snare drum, and the hats. So I had two mics on the snare, one on the kick, and only one remaining mic option. We'd already put a mic on the hi-hat and had liked it, and that was that option already used up. So I tried something. I put an overhead mic up overhead, unplugged the cable from the hats mic, and compared the two sounds. Did we like the hats mic or the overhead mic? I mean, you want drum overheads, don't you? And we preferred the hi-hat mic sound over the overhead one. Recording drums with no overhead mics at all? We were recording in a big wooden high-ceiling room, and I'd wanted to have some room sound in there. Had planned on maybe putting a mic far out from the kit to pick it, likely along with a bunch of phase problems, up. I compromised by trying to pull the mics back from the kit a bit to get more room sound, but found that really only the hi-hat mic could be pulled back without making the sound grow thinner than I wanted. So no overheads overhead hooked up at all, and two snare mics. That's what we did. Like I say... Rank amateur here. And the drums sounded a little trashy and surfy, which delighted me. We'd gone from adding drums to a song that sounded just fine without them to adding a whole trashy surf vibe to the song, which I hadn't known would go really well with it. Collaboration. I returned Evan and his stuff home after we'd stopped for pizza and the snow had begun to fall in earnest, causing the next day to be a snow day from school and Cynthia and I working from home anyway and her not needing her snare drum and cables and mics until the next day when she was somewhat disheartened with how messily I had coiled her 50-foot mic cables. Keen-eared listeners to this podcast will note that I drove into the city in snowy weather and paid over $150 for four 20-foot mic cables that I didn't even take out of their packaging because Cynthia had so kindly lent me four 50-foot ones. Drum part added, I checked to see if the bass guitar, played to a click track a decade earlier, 
would mesh with the new drums instead. It sounded okay to me. The shakers had, this time, been done a decade or so before the drums, but glued to the click track, they sounded okay with the drums too, I thought. Everywhere 